0: Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Kim C and this is the year of underrated Stephen King podcast. I'm a university fiction teacher and this is my one-woman Stephen King podcast where I take the writing classroom and bring it to the works of Stephen King because the king of fiction requires investigation and analysis. Boys and girls, you read it right. Your eyes do not deceive you. This is our super secret summer surprise episode where I will investigate 1977's The Shining. It is absolutely boiling, melting, roasting where I'm at. And what better way to cool things down a little bit than to bring on the torrential snowstorms from a little town in Sidewinder, Colorado. But yes, friends, I'm doing it. We're going in, I'm bursting at the seams over this absolute masterpiece, but before we break the seal and dig in, let's shed a little light as to how this super secret summer surprise came to be. As a lot of you all know, I don't spend a lot of time on King's more notable works because they're, they're everywhere, right? You can throw a tiny pebble not far and it'll hit a Stephen King podcast talking about one of the greats. And on this show, I really enjoy languishing on the underrated works, but every now and then we have an outlier. And this year, we may have more than one outlier King title sneak into the episode queue because as I mentioned in my three years in episode a couple months back... I was asked by a friend and local business owner to lead a Stephen King book club of which I happily said yes, absolutely could not say no. I have led other book clubs in the past and love, love, love them. And in order to get the club off the ground, I really wanted there to be a theme of King titles so we could market the club and have some nice intro novels for some brand new Stephen King readers out there. So I decided to focus on the psychic slash paranormal children within King's work because we have so many bountiful pics out there and I felt it was a solid direction to take. Thus far, this local Stephen King book club has read Firestarter, The Institute, we had a bunch of fun with Later, and of course, it could not be denied. How could we proceed with the psychic-slash-paranormal children of Stephen King without discussing little Danny Torrance from The Shining? How? As you know, friends, it can't be done. Cannot. Ergo, the chosen novel was The Shining. And because I've not yet done a podcast episode on it, not yet taken the time to really spend some time with all the text, here we are. Full force analysis on one of the best Stephen King novels of all time we're doing it and friends i'm excited i'm nervous but overall i'm really freaking pumped because wow this story my guys this novel there are no words and simultaneously there are already too many words and this episode i'm afraid it's going to be way longer than i intend but overall i'm just absolutely struck dumb and speechless over the terrifying brilliance of this novel and my god i'm just i'm 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 feeling so much guys i feeling a wall of emotion so excited but also I, I am feeling the pressure to do this right i really am scared i'm gonna screw it up so let's do this together fingers crossed i don't make a big mess everywhere <laughs> onward into the snow Okay, staying on track, this time around was my second time with The Shining. I read it for the very first time in, if memory serves me, 2015-2016, which was pretty early on my Stephen King journey. I just realized this week, y'all, that it's been 10 years with King. I first read Full Dark No Stars at the age of 26 in 2013. So this summer will mark 10 years with the master. And I know a lot of you out there have multiple decades on me, of which I bow down. You are the people I wanna be when I grow up. I'm just so happy I made it to the party. But yeah, 10 years with King this summer. Around 2015, 2016, I was moving into my new home, unpacking boxes, listened to it on audiobook as the hours flew by i really loved it of course it's a total suspense thrill ride i remember feeling super freaked out really impressed but i at that time hadn't read enough of king to really really compare it to the other works i was probably three or four king novels in by that point maybe yeah i think it was full dark no stars pet cemetery it and then the shining must have been somewhere around there But yes, unpacking boxes, pounding heart. Granted, my experience with The Shining wasn't as bad as my misery experience, which was a lot like running a marathon. Or rather, felt like the long walk without shoes on, jump back to that episode to hear my trauma. (laughs) But The Shining. Sadly folks, I sort of broke my own rule and I did not have the text in front of me as much as I would have liked back then. I was busy, I was unpacking, so I pretty much just listened to it on audiobook. Whereas now I always have the text in front of me and simultaneously the audiobook is playing. It is so fun if you've never done it. I'm addicted, I can't stop, and it really allows for maximum absorption of the text I remember so much more, so many things stick with me, it's just a really beautiful media experience. If you haven't done it, I highly recommend. Anyway, this time around, ladies and gentlemen, I had the text right in front of my eyes. I had my new, hotter paperback that I got from a beautiful bookstore in Killarney, Ireland, stuffed it in with all of my Ireland souvenirs, brought it home that was my chosen text and what a difference it is to have the narrative in front of me and then listening to the audiobook for the second time narrator and actor campbell scott is just stellar ladies and gentlemen beyond incredible if you haven't enjoyed the audio experience of the shining let's do that immediately let's do it right now today it's fantastic No matter where you are or how many times you've read The Shining, if you haven't yet heard Campbell Scott's interpretation, let's do that. I love it to pieces. So yes, this is my second experience with The Shining, but this second time around was what the first round should have been. I was really engaged with the text. I was so moved. So moved, everyone. We- oh gosh, okay. I gotta hold myself back here (laughs) before I dive into all my emotion. Let's talk about the backstory of this absolutely iconic text. I'm sure a lot of constant readers out there know the actual story of how The Shining came to be, but if it's been a minute, let's rejog some memories out there. According to the internet, Mr. King and his wife Tabitha went to Colorado in the early 1970s. My sources say 1974, but that is unknown. But basically, King has published Carrie in 1974, I believe Salem's Lot was already finished, so we might be around 1975, 1976. And he needed a vacay, pointed on a map, they ended up in Boulder, Colorado, and at the end of October, they found themselves in Estes Park and checked into the Stanley Hotel. Tabitha and Steve were the only guests in the place. All 140 rooms were empty because the hotel was getting ready to close for the season. He and his wife had dinner in the rather abandoned dining hall. And that night, King had a terrible nightmare where a fire hose was horrifically anthropomorphized into a rather sinister creature with teeth and it was chasing his son, Joe, pretty sure it was Joe, up and down these long abandoned corridors. And upon waking, he pretty much had the shell of the book in his mind. And that book shell paired with the earlier concept he had about a psychic child. So they got sandwiched together real good and proper. And if you guys listened to my Joyland episode from many moons ago, an oldie but a goodie, when I was talking about that novel, right around the time when King was brainstorming The Shining, he thought that maybe instead of a hotel, the Torrance family would be looking after an abandoned theme park. But that's another setting that was put on the stew pot for several more years, so King continued to brainstorm and I think staying at the Stanley Hotel definitely solidified what he had in mind. Shortly after he starts pumping out the draft, he wrote it in 4 months, which <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, that is a feat. That's approximately 3000 words a day. It was released in 1977. It was King's first hardback bestseller. Huge, huge, huge this is the text that really catapulted him into stardom, and then in 1980, a rather mercurial, dare I say, director by the name of Stanley Kubrick adapted it into one of the most iconic horror films of all time, and also the most hotly contested King adaptations of all time. No matter how you feel about the movie, if you read the book, oh we got some problems but then 20 years after the novel's publication in 1997 there was a three part miniseries on abc and hopefully a little later in this episode i will be able to share some thoughts on not only the shining film but also the miniseries we'll see it's a tall order i got a lot of work to do i hope i can do both maybe But we will definitely have a few thoughts on the kubrick film for sure okay moving right along here although many 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 of us know what this story is all about it wouldn't be a kim c episode if we didn't kick this off with a summary for my reading copy i have the brand new ultimate storyteller from hotter it's 500 pages in that paperback edition but I also have the original hardback, I don't think it's a first edition, but it's in really beautiful condition, and the hardcover was approximately 450 pages. This novel is composed of four parts, 58 chapters, and begins with the Torrance family down on their luck. Having recently lost his teaching job for an East Coast prep school, Jack Torrance takes his wife Wendy and their 5-year-old son Danny across country for a new opportunity. The Overlook Hotel is closing for the season and needs a live-in caretaker until spring. This job will help the family grow closer, help Jack with playwriting, his sobriety journey, and provide the new start they need all is rosy until young Downey falls victim to unsettling events within the hotel. Events that awaken Wendy and Jack to the fact that their son is no ordinary little boy, and something inside the very old, very scandal-filled Overlook Hotel is pushing them towards danger. My loves, we're doing it. I just can't believe it. We're doing it. Before we head into this episode, please be cautious if you've never read it or if it's been a minute. Let's jump back and give it a reread. If you've never read The Shining before, please don't let me ruin anything for you. Also, I would like to give a little bit of a caveat emptor, little warning out there for everybody. This novel features a lot of very unsettling themes, stuff that is incredibly triggering. We've got alcoholism, domestic abuse, childhood trauma, a lot of violence. So if you're really not in that mindset, let's skip on out of here. Some of the things we're going to be talking about in this episode are unsettling, are triggering. If you're a constant reader, you know that's kind of how King rolls. He is a maestro of the theatrical horror, but also the human horror. More on that later. Ladies and gentlemen, let's unmask, unmask, and break down The Shining under the following categories. We're first going to explore what's working in the novel, where its strengths are, and hopefully I can condense my pages and pages and pages of notes that are strengths into some digestible bullet points. I think we'll get there. Next, we're going to take a look at our characters, explore the heroes, villains, and honorable mentions found within. After that, we'll transition into criticism and questions, and from there, I'd like to take a few minutes to share my thoughts on the Kubrick film and hopefully the 1997 Shining miniseries. I hope I can tackle both in one episode, if not, we might have to have a few extra thoughts down the road. I'm going to do my best. For now, let's carry our bags into the Colorado Lounge. Mr. Ullman is about to begin the walking tour, so let's head in and start the show. Greetings, guests of the overlook. This is the strength section. So, usually I dive right in with my categories, but because the Shining is a special lady, I thought we would kick off this section with our text example usually in every episode i try and select a portion of the novel that i feel is just highlighting some beautiful writing and for this section i really want everyone to remember and recall what a beautifully written story this is and this sample is going to highlight the strengths that i have set aside to chat with all of you about once more i am using my reader's copy which is the 2021 hotter and Stouten version of the shining as i'm making my way through the novel chapter by chapter completely consumed totally involved even toward the end of the novel for whatever reason i kept thinking about chapter six which is completely from wendy's perspective and it's called Night Thoughts. It is a really powerful chapter, completely dedicated to Wendy, who doesn't really get a lot of spotlight in this novel. But as you guys know, I'm really into the women of Stephen King. I like placing some extra observation on his female characters. I just found this so compelling and so beautiful and so telling. So while I'm reading this example, take note of what he's doing here. Also, for those of you who know what happens in the story, which I think is the majority of us, take account how poignant this is based on how the novel unfolds. This is going to be pages 58 and 59 in the Hotter and Stoughton edition. She had stuck with Jack more for Danny's sake than she would admit in her waking hours, but now, sleeping lightly, she could admit it. Danny had been Jack's for the asking, almost from the first, just as she had been her father's almost from the first. She couldn't remember Danny ever spitting a bottle back on Jack's shirt. Jack could get him to eat after she had given up in disgust, even when Danny was teething and it gave him visible pain to chew. When Danny had a stomach ache, she would rock him for an hour before he would begin to quiet. Jack had only to pick him up, walk twice around the room with him and Danny would be asleep on Jack's shoulder, his thumb securely corked in his mouth. He hadn't minded changing diapers, even those he called the special deliveries. He sat with Danny for hours on end, bouncing him on his lap, playing finger games with him, making faces at him while Danny poked at his nose and then collapsed with the giggles. He made formulas and administered them faultlessly, getting up every last burp afterward. He would take Danny with him in the car to get the paper or a bottle of milk or nails at the hardware store, even when their son was still an infant. He had taken danny to a stovington keen soccer match when danny was only six months old and danny had sat motionlessly on his father's lap through the whole game wrapped in a blanket a small stovington pennant clutched in one chubby fist he loved his mother but he was his father's boy and hadn't she felt time and time again her son's wordless opposition to the whole idea of divorce she would be thinking about it in the kitchen turning it over in her mind as she turned the potatoes for supper over in her hands for the peeler's blade, and she would turn around to see him sitting cross-legged in a kitchen chair, looking at her with eyes that seemed both frightened and accusatory. Walking with him in the park, he would suddenly seize both her hands and say, almost a do you love me? Do you love Daddy? And confused, she would nod or say, of course I do, honey. Then she would run to the duck pond, sending them squawking and scared to the other end, flapping their wings in a panic before the small ferocity of his charge, leaving her to stare after him and wonder. There were even times when it seemed that her determination to at least discuss the matter with Jack dissolved, not out of her own weakness, but under the determination of her own son's will. I don't believe such things, but in sleep she did believe them. And in sleep, with her husband's seed still drying on her thighs, she felt that the three of them had been permanently welded together, that if their three-slash-oneness was to be destroyed, it would not be destroyed by any of them but from outside. Most of what she believed centered around her love for Jack. She had never stopped loving him, except maybe for that dark period immediately following Danny's accident, and she loved her son. Most of all, she loved them together, walking or riding or only sitting. Jack's large head and Danny's small one poised alertly over the fans of old maid hands, sharing a bottle of Coke, looking at the funnies. She loved having them with her, and she hoped to dear God that this hotel caretaking job Al had gotten for Jack would be the beginning of good times again. And the wind gonna rise up, baby, and blow my blues away. Soft and sweet and mellow, the song came back and lingered, following her down into a deep sleep where thoughts ceased and the faces that came in dreams went unremembered. Oh, folks. Oh, my heart. It just annihilates me. This entire chapter. Oh, my goodness. So if it's been a minute since you've read The Shining, but you're really familiar with the story, with the plot arcs, all the good stuff, spend some time with chapter six, Night Thoughts. I think it's really powerful. It can definitely be overlooked because the plot is so explosive. We've got horror and domestic violence and addiction and possession. We just have the whole kitchen sink thrown out at us. So now that we've kind of warmed up our gears and greased the hinges a bit, I have four categories of strength, and let me tell you, it was tricky getting it down to four. Not fun. I really hate crossing things out, but I had so many, folks. We have so much strength in this novel, I can't even. Stemming from our lovely textual example, I did want to put into the spotlight first point of view and narrative structure our narrator is third-person omniscient. It is the all-seeing eye, but what's even more beautiful is that King decided to spend time intimately with each character. We're able to go into Jack's mind, his memories, his insecurities. Same thing with Wendy, and same thing with little Danny who, although he is very little, his reality is absolutely compelling because he is a very, very special little boy. But what the narrative structure does, what this point of view does, is really allow for incredible character development, but also amazing character connection. We really, really get close with these characters because the narration is so intimate we are with these people. But it's unlike first-person narration, which is very surface, very immediate. This is much deeper. I'm so, so pleased he decided to tell the story from this perspective. I'm thrilled that everyone gets a generous amount of spotlight, and so we are locked in this trio. We are locked in this triad of a family who is really put between a rock and a hard place due to economic disadvantages. We're going to definitely highlight more about that in our next section, but point of view and narrative structure is absolutely compelling and so, so strong. And I think had the story be written any other way, I don't know if it would be as memorable. If it was just from Wendy and Danny's point of view and not from jo- I mean... We just have so much to consider when analyzing this book because we have so much detail about these characters. Once more, we're going to definitely expand upon characters in our next section, but I'm thrilled with the point of view and narrative structure. My next area of strength is huge, absolutely huge. Put that in all capitals, please. And that is foreshadowing. Dear listeners, One of the most compelling, sort of, eureka moments I had with the text the second time around, almost immediately, like within the first five pages, you're hit with foreshadowing. It's everywhere, because one thing that became abundantly clear to me on this second read was that The Shining is a story about doom. This is not a happy tale in any way. The novel opens up with Jack speaking to Mr. Ullman, who's a rather cantankerous, seemingly bitter-buddy kind of character, who tells him about this caretaker job and then casually, nonchalantly mentions that the previous caretaker, Grady, murdered his family and committed suicide. Right off the bat, the reader learns that that's the exact job that Jack is signing up for. And while we're supposed to be hopeful as the reader and we're taking in all this other data from all these other areas, this is a tragic, doom-filled story. From page one, it was never going to go well for anyone in this tale. And that hit me like a stack of bricks, ladies and gentlemen. It was just so apparent this time. This is a sad horror story where the foreshadowing of said doom is almost every chapter. Almost every chapter, little Danny is encountering some kind of premonition from Tony, more on him in a bit, receiving visions. And not just Danny, because he is a paranormal, psychic individual. We've got the foreshadowing absolutely everywhere, especially when they get to the Overlook. The foreshadowing is absolutely overflowing it's such a compelling device because i think it's guiding the reader down the dark murky steps to kind of remind you yeah this ain't gonna be good and regarding this thrill ride the question is not whether they avoid suffering it's who endures and who survives which is yikes but as a literary device it makes for an absolutely compulsively readable story we just have all these hooks that latch onto us danny has a premonition of a bloodied roke mallet before we even get to the overlook before we even know what roke is we just have so many echoes and then as the narration continues we just yep. We knew, <laughs> we knew that was coming because all this foreshadowing for me was to kind of say, this is what it was from the very start, kiddo. In case you got your wires crossed, this was always about doom. This was always about the destruction of this family. Which, when you really put it to rest with that in mind, it is a lot. <laughs> it's a lot, folks. Whoa, it's so heavy. Brilliant, but very heavy, very emotional. My third category of strength is, of course, elements of the gothic. For those of you who have been hanging out with the show for a while, you know I'm always hitting up this term gothic. I love it to pieces. For anyone who needs a little bit of a reminder, Gothic is in reference to the architecture movement of that time, of course, but also, it was used a lot among the Victorians because they didn't really have a horror genre at that time. So, gothic stories involved a spooky house with a lot of secrets. And today, that still holds true. So anytime you hear the term gothic in reference to a narrative, think setting and think secrets. It is all about the setting, and it is all about secrets of the past impacting the present. Stephen King has gothic novels all over the place, Duma Key is one I'm obsessed with, but The Shining is just as gothic as it gets, ladies and gentlemen. It is the definition of gothic. We have the Overlook Hotel, which is almost 100 years old. It has been owned by rather infamous individuals if not just one individual. Its guests have been very scandalous. There has been a lot of violence, murder, a lot of sordid, sexual, god knows what. The setting of the Overlook and its secrets are at the heart of this novel. But King also brings in additional gothic texts that exacerbate that power. We have referenced multiple times throughout the novel the Mask of the Red Death, which is an Edgar Allan Poe narrative. It works so, so well, especially concerning the grand soiree. That is a huge part of the plot in the latter half of the novel when everything is really starting to boil over, pun intended. (laughs) We also have the tale of Bluebeard the Pirate, which is a very creepy tale with a rather violent, macabre ending. So lots of historical text referenced in The Shining but King absolutely has made a fantastic gothic tale. The Overlook and its secrets trying to destroy the Torrance family. Shirley Jackson does something similar in The Haunting of Hill House. All of your Bronte sisters, your Wuthering Heights, Jane Eyre, all gothic novels, super duper famous, and at their heart, there is going to be a spooky house, lots of secrets, and the secrets are, sometimes quite literally, bubbling up <laughs> from the depths to greatly impact our present-day protagonists in a negative way. Within the really successful gothic elements, we've got some Lovecraft in here, folks. Yes, we do. Everybody who's a fan of Room 217 and Mrs. Massey, there you go. We've got some old-school macabre writing going on very reminiscent of lovecraft and it's creepy and it is so 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 effective but yes the paranormal supernatural all the horror all of those threads connect back to the gothic so the shining definitely is an iconic text in the world of king fans but looking at it as just a gothic novel it totally works it's got everything you need for an awesome gothic text So if that's something you missed on one of your multiple readings, take a look at how he uses those gothic references, as well as those passages of history about the Overlook, what's going on at the time he is revealing those. So, 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 so good. My last strength, the fourth category, is horror and heartbreak. Alright, dear ones, so... The Shining is listed as one of King's scariest novels. Rightly so, very accurate. We have a ton of evidence to support that. But not only do we have some really, really scary, paranormal, supernatural stuff, we have the human horror and the heartbreak that is broken humanity. And so I really want to touch on that because I think so many individuals especially non-king readers or king haters for that matter they only know him or rather think they know him in quotes because of pop culture they assume that it's all about thrills and chills monsters ghosts insert said terrifying horror element but at its heart we have such a heartbreaking story my friends and it's easy forget about especially when we look at sort of the heinous behavior from jack it's easy to forget everything that these people are facing as i touched upon in the intro we've got addiction in all of its horrifying faces our character of jack torrance is quite literally white knuckling sobriety we have child abuse domestic abuse we've got isolation we have the difficulties of parenthood We have a lot of marital discontent. And then on top of that, we kind of have the human body's fragility against nature. We've got some man versus nature in there as well. Let's also throw in depression, anxiety, you know, those two bedfellows, they're always around hanging out. But I think it's important that in our analysis of The Shining, we have to talk about both. We have to talk about the successful, frightening bits written within the story but then, we also have to take a look at the non-paranormal elements. What Jack does to his wife, Wendy, at the end is harrowing. What Jack's father, Mark, did to his mother in front of his brothers and sisters, unforgettably horrifying. And so, when I was composing my notes and really thinking about all of those terrible scenes, I don't even know if I should really mention this or talk about it, but I think it's important. because. It impacts so many people but i thought of my mom my mom grew up in a household with an abusive alcoholic father and the things that she saw as a young girl have haunted her for the rest of her life she never touched alcohol her entire life based on what she saw and at the age of 64 my mom If she sees something on TV or reads something that features an alcoholic father abusing the mother or the child, she crumbles. I see my mom go to pieces. And some horrors are forever. Some horrors haunt the soul deeper than anything. And I think so many people out there are impacted by alcoholism and addiction and abuse and... It's something that we really have to cautiously, yet boldly discuss when looking at this novel. And so I I think about that, and I think about my mom. And even though some of the terror that Danny sees is only one night. In Doctor Sleep, we realize that one night of terror was really all it took. But I, I can't imagine others who have had multiple nights and years upon years upon years of their dad or mom or legal guardian in that state of drunkenness and abuse. And it it haunts me. It haunts me knowing that that is the human horror that is very, very real for so many people. So that's another strength of this story, I guess, is King is not afraid to put the reader in a very intimate yet horror-filled, dangerous space that has nothing to do with the paranormal. It's just the terrors of life and the terrors of addiction, of which King himself was touching on in this story. A lot of this story, as you know, involves parenthood, the challenges around that, and if you have a parent who's an addict, my goodness, why don't you just make it 10,000 times more difficult? And then, of course, it's the memories that children carry with them into adulthood, which is why King is such a beautiful composer of childhood drama. But yeah, incredibly powerful, paranormal horror, and heartbreak. I could definitely go on more, but I'm really eager to talk about our characters. So let's kind of recap some of the strengths. There are several, several more. I did have to cross out a few to not make this a 10,000-hour episode. But to recap, Firstly, we have point of view and narrative structure. So wonderful. Next, we have foreshadowing. Absolutely everywhere. This story is about doom from start to finish from page one to the very end. Doom, 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 doom. Tragedy and doom. Next, we have elements of the Gothic. And lastly, horror and heartbreak. Tread carefully as we round the corner and pass room 217 think it's getting a little chilly in here what do you guys think might need to get my sweater let's get on out of here and i'll see you in the next section Hello everyone, I've just returned from admiring some hedge animals and now I'm ready to talk about characters. We have a very long list to go over today, but before we start slicing into this big old cake, I do want to put forth a few topics I want you guys to hold in your mind's eye as we go forward. The first one is the timeline of madness. The date I have written down in my notes of when the torrents arrive at the Overlook Hotel is the end of September, which is interesting because I think the actual end of the Stanley season was October. Hence, the story of Steve and his wife. So I could have wrote that down wrong, and it may have been the end of October. Unknown, but I have end of September written down. And so from the time they arrive at the hotel until all hell breaks loose and up she goes, we're at December 2nd. So that would be approximately eight weeks. Whereas the film, it's around a month and change right around 40 days, perhaps, which I like because the mystics say that true soul conversions happen in 40 days, which is why we have that number featured prominently in the good book. So, I don't know if I wrote that down wrong and eight weeks is a bit much, but it seems correct. Eight weeks from zero to homicide. (laughs) the next topic i want to remind you all of is one that i explored in my christine episode last year you can jump right to the character section if you need to have your memory jogged or if you haven't spent time with the christine episode i recommend that as well but in my christine character section i talk about the cunningham family specifically arnie and his mom and dad with those characters I explored the Biblical illusion of the Holy Family because that's exactly what we have here with Wendy, Danny, and Jack. Any time in film or in literature that you have the mother, the father, and the son, no other siblings, no other familial attachments in the same scene, it can be interpreted as biblical illusion in the Judeo-Christian tradition of Joseph, Mary, and Jesus. It works incredibly well in horror films, because we always know that the dark forces are very keen on destroying really anything to do with religious concepts or loving light-filled places. And so in Christine, they do exactly that. Without revealing too much, let's just say it doesn't go well for any member of the Cunningham family. And we have that mirrored here in The Shining with Jack. Wendy, and Danny. This trio, this holy, sacred triad of family of a mother, father, son mirrors Jesus, Mary, Joseph. And of course, not only do we have the son, who is very, very special, more on that in a skosh, all the evil forces within the Overlook Hotel are doing their darndest to take them all out one by one. The biblical illusion is very very strong and we see this echoed very loudly in that chapter i can't stop talking about chapter six night thoughts with wendy discussing how much she loves their family unit how connected she feels to her son how she loves her life with jack despite all of its issues and that she feels the power and the connectedness between them and that if something were to try and break them apart, it would be, foreshadowing insert, something from the outside. But yes, I didn't know where to squeeze these two concepts in, so here is where they get squeezed. The Timeline of Madness and the Biblical Illusion of the Holy Family. And with that said, let's dive in with our first character. We have to make this guy first, he's on the top shelf our very sacred son, Danny Torrance. Little Danny is five years old the entire duration of the story. He is a very powerful little boy, and thanks to my book club, I was really able to suss out what we've got going on. King really throws the kitchen sink at us in terms of this little one's abilities. In my notes, Danny Torrance is someone who has incredible emotional empathy he can walk into a room he could feel what others are feeling he can also hear their thoughts so we've got some telepathy going on in there and then once he gets to the overlook this poor little lamb can see the past he can walk into a room and see the blood on the wall and he can also in the present day see the dead and interact with them he can be harmed by them which is incredibly frightening and makes danny an incredibly vulnerable individual because despite his powers he can't defend himself these abilities are really making him just more enticing to malevolent forces he's not able to really harness anything yet he's kind of just victim to a lot of it someone who is special, who has these abilities, but so, so vulnerable. When I talk about Danny, I really need to talk about Tony. Tony is a huge character, one that makes me ask a lot of questions, but he is a very intriguing aspect of the novel. When we first learn of Tony, it is described as Danny's imaginary friend. This is a voice inside Danny's mind that is consistently providing him with premonitions, visions of very dark things, and slices of the future. Danny has a vision of a bloodied roke mallet in his father's presence, very, very upsetting. He doesn't understand what any of this means, but Tony is consistently looking out for him telling him to watch out, telling him to not go to the Overlook. And in my first read-through of The Shining, as well as my second read-through, I completely forgot what Tony was or what he's assumed to be. And I feel because Danny is so young, based on other horror films that I like, insert poltergeist, The dead like little kids, and I was hoping that Tony was some sort of relative, some sort of guardian angel, a Jiminy Cricket presence if you will, some sort of benevolent force on the other side that was assisting Danny, trying to look out for him. But, spoilers ahead, in the last act of the novel, we discover as the reader that Tony is neither of those things. And it's a future version of Danny, warning himself or trying to protect himself or do something despite not being able to impact the past. I'm really blown away by that. I actually have a lot of issues with it, of which I will throw a few critiques at in our criticism section. But that's Tony. Tony is... I don't know what's going on with the space-time continuum there, but he is astral projecting into the past, I guess, to try and impact things, or rather just looking out for himself as a child, which I think if any of us had that ability, we would definitely do the same. Try and take care of our literal inner child, our literal selves as children. I have a zillion and one questions about Tony, but I love his presence in the novel the movie aspect of Tony, uh, we'll get there, (laughs) but Danny is such an amazing character and I'm so thrilled that King brought him into modern day with the Doctor Sleep novel. I don't want to talk too much about Doctor Sleep, but I've read it and I love it and these two novels are connected, so I'm gonna most likely talk a little bit about it, but it won't be anything too revealing. I may mention one or two Dr. Sleep things, just saying. But yes, Danny can definitely slide into our holy other son, a very special, vulnerable individual with a powerful sixth sense in which otherworldly forces really want to get close to. One of my book club members mentioned how Danny's vocabulary and other interactions make him seem a little bit older than five years old which is valid but I think because of his abilities because of this Tony connection I'm just kind of having radical acceptance over that and so if he does seem a little bit older I'm okay with that just because this is just a lot for a little person this is a lot for a five-year-old child i don't know what it's like being inside his brain and it's most likely terrifying and this traumatized individual yeah he's probably not going to be your average five-year-old but i love danny and someone who is absolutely integral to danny's health and well-being is our next character wendy torrance wendy is definitely embodying the sacred mother archetype there is so much maternal warmth and love emanating from this woman i feel chapter six is one of the only windows into her previous life we learn of her early days with jack we learn that she has a relationship with her parents that isn't so great we kind of see a bit of a glimpse as to who she was before marriage and children but not by much And then when she gets to the Overlook Hotel, I think we kind of lose her a little bit into a caretaking role, a homemaker role, which makes sense. They're definitely fishes out of water. They're in this immense, grand, open space, and she and Danny are just kind of together. Jack's off doing his writing thing, losing his mind slowly, and Danny and Wendy are kind of these little buoys linked to each other adrift in this very strange place and they have to look out for each other or rather wendy just has to be this cocoon-like mother trying to make normalcy trying to create a nest for her son and her husband because that's the only thing she can control. They have a lot of economic disadvantages, and then once the weather hits, it really goes south for everybody, and Wendy loses contact with the outside world. She also is unable to drive their car out into the mountains of snow. They're buried alive, they're absolutely snowed in. So this lady loses a lot of outward power, but maintains that inner power throughout the story as that maternal figure. Wendy is, of course, horrifically injured by her husband. It still chills me to the bone when I recall what is done to her. It just really messes me up. And I'm so thrilled that she's able to endure that because she's just that stronghold, that maternal forge that i think king sets up in the novel for her and what's really sad is when we refer back to chapter six i'm telling you guys that chapter is so huge for wendy it's like everything if you have forgotten a lot about this lady head back to chapter six and just spend some time in her mind in her past in her memories it's huge it's so revealing girlfriend wanted to divorce this guy before they left For boulder she was over it she was really over his drunkenness those late nights and then after danny's accident in quotes forget it she was already thinking about flying the coop with her son and surviving any way she could but love and sympathy and that dynamic of the three of them together really reels her back When her gut instinct was firing on all cylinders for her to leave so fascinating but i love wendy i really love taking a close look at stephen king females she is someone like beverly marsh there are so many layers there are so many angles i'm really sad about the film version of wendy more on that later But overall, what a powerful maternal figure, what a lovely woman in the King canon, Wendy Torrance. So next, we're gonna talk about Dick Halloran. I love this character to pieces. I love him, love him, love him so, so much. And I was so thrilled that the book club loved him as well. But Dick is the chef at the Overlook, and connects with young Danny right before he heads to sunny Florida. He is in his 60s and really grounds the narrative with what Danny's abilities are. He calls it the shining. People who shine have these abilities to talk and not move their mouths, to see things, to connect to things. And so Danny feels an immense amount of comfort from dick's presence and dick promises to help him out should anything get really bad should anything bad happen one thing that we do have to mention and i definitely should have mentioned this a while back in my green mile coverage but i couldn't do it at that time it was far too emotional is the magical negro or magical black character trope I'm not crazy about using the phrase magical negro, Spike Lee crafted that one, which is all well and good, but this is a really important concept and problematic element to King's writing. It's something that is not really aging well, but it's good to talk about it and it's good to shed some light on it. Unfortunately, I don't have a lot of scholarly evidence and articles at this present time, but there are a lot of amazing authors and scholars who absolutely nail this topic. I know a lot of other King podcasts do a beautiful job of really expanding upon this, but when you have the archetype of the wise sage or someone who's like the mystic or the shaman, the subcategory or trope of that is the magical black character. These are characters of African descent they have powers, and those powers specifically benefit white characters. And this is challenging because in the greater cultural outlook, these black characters are continuing to be subordinate to white characters. We have this with John Coffey in The Green Mile. We have this with Mother Abigail in The Stand. I'm sure it's in several other places. The magical black character trope isn't really aging well and it is here very prominently with dick halloran however i do feel dick has a bit more agency he's largely absent for the majority of the novel and i feel that his choice to go back is kind of stemming from his good nature i feel he definitely has a lot more choices but again still problematic still very tricky i don't have all the scholastic context that i would to really balance this debate at this immediate present time, but just know that Dick Halloran is a prime example of the magical black character trope within King's work, and it is problematic, not aging well, definitely a conflict when we encounter it. But having presented that aspect of it, even though it's kind of a very tangled yarn ball that Dick's wrapped up in, I still adore this character. Regardless of his abilities, he has a good soul. He's an empathetic person who sees a mother and child isolated, alone, sees a broken family, and wants to help at all costs. And that makes him just an inherently good character, a hero. And I think if Dick didn't have The Shining, I would still love him, I would still think he's amazing, because somebody who is that selfless, who risks death and freezing to a block of ice, deserves that merit. And Dick Halloran is stellar. Anytime he's on the page, it makes me happy. And I'm so thrilled that King carried him on over into Dr. Sleep. We are so, so lucky that we get more of Dick Halloran. I love this man. Love him to pieces. And for those of you who are interested in learning more about the magical Black character trope, I'll try and hunt down some articles and links and attach them in the show notes but let us mosey right along to this other character I don't really wanna talk about, but we have to. Mark Anthony Torrance. This is the grandfather of Danny Torrance and Jack's father. This man is listed to be a hospital orderly. I don't know if he's a nurse, but he is a heavily drinking man and extremely abusive to his wife and four children. Jack is the youngest. He has two older brothers and one older sister, and as a family of six, they really witness some horrific things. We only encounter this individual through Jack's memories. Some of them have a little bit of positive edges around them. Jack remembers loving his father's games. But sadly, these horrific scenes of abuse definitely speak louder than anything else. I mention Mark because he is integral to who Jack becomes. Jack starts self-medicating with alcohol at a very young age. And of course, in Doctor Sleep, if you think about Danny's profession, his chosen profession in Doctor Sleep, the city and state he's living in, there's a really big connection to grandfather Mark Torrance that I didn't really see on my first read through, and definitely am seeing now. If you think about Dr. Sleep, I don't know if King was trying to write some generational traumas there by having Danny choose a similar field. Unknown, but I really, really like it. Mark Torrance is unfortunately a very terrible catalyst for both characters of Danny and Jack. So I do need to give him a little bit of spotlight Because he is somebody who appears in the novel all over the place. His terrifying violence, his monstrous presence is probably in every chapter. And it's really not fun. It's pretty gross. But when we are looking at the characters in this novel, he's definitely somebody that we need to keep in our focus. My last character is, of course biggest riddle of them all, that is Jack Torrance. Jack has been listed as one of the really unique King characters that is both a protagonist and antagonist. When we see Jack at the beginning of the novel, he is someone who is trying. This guy is white-knuckling sobriety, which as we have seen therapy develop over the years, that is never a good thing to do. It's always beneficial to have a sponsor to have an accountability partner to have a support group to help you on that journey it is very very difficult if not impossible to do by yourself but he's trying that's i think the key word that we have to have in mind when it comes to jack he's trying and i think all of that trying trying to be a good husband trying to be a good father trying not to drink trying to write By the time he gets to the isolation of the Overlook and the very dangerous psychic doom pit that encompasses the hotel, all those demons, all those malevolent, ghostly spirits, he's weary. He's weary from all that trying, and he does not have the spiritual strength. I mean, Dick Halloran worked in the hotel for a long time with Danny's similar gift and I don't think he until the very end of the novel got attacked by the Overlook because some sort of strength was there. Jack doesn't have it. What I found fascinating in the book club setting is we had a lot of members have zero sympathy for Jack. They don't give a rat's behind that he was a victim of child abuse. They don't really sympathize with his alcoholism. The way they see it is that everybody has tough goes in life. And it's your responsibility to make good choices, to be a good parent. You don't have to let the past dictate your future. On the other hand, we have individuals who understand that he's failing at that. This is somebody who is failing. He's not a strong-willed individual. Or if he is, the right environment started hammering away at that, pun intended, right away. Whatever he needed inside to maintain that strength, to maintain What he needed to get through life to be the family man to be the loving husband the good father something broke in there and the hotel fed on it like sharks at a chum bucket they really really did and so i'm kind of stuck in the middle on the one side i get really upset with jack and i think he's a egotistical narcissist who's incredibly cruel and selfish and i get really mad at all of his whining and on the other hand my heart breaks for him and i want to give him a hug and I want to let him know that he shouldn't be doing this alone. And yeah, no wonder why this is happening when you've been carrying this huge weight, this back-breaking, soul-shattering weight the entire time. Nobody can do it. And so I have immense empathy for him. And that, ladies and gentlemen, for me, is the mark of a winning character. This is someone who makes me feel a lot. And for some people, based on their own personal interpretations of things and of King's story. He doesn't deserve patience or kindness or a second chance or any of that stuff. And others do see, especially in that final beautiful scene with Jack and Danny, when he tells him to run, when he tries to stall the ghosts. That self-bludgeoning scene, of course, could be interpreted in a couple different ways, but I believe in that final moment, he was Danny's father. They had a loving bond between them i think he really genuinely loved his son and did not want to do harm to him or his mother and so by me being able to genuinely believe that the character arc of jack comes full circle for some readers it's not enough for other readers it is and that is fascinating and that's why we will continue to discuss the shining forever and forever and forever because Jack is a real human. He is a real flawed, tragic hero and villain. And I think I will put him on the shelf with my other favorite tragic King characters. He might be right next to Johnny Smith from The Dead Zone and Scott Landon from Lisey Story. I don't know if I love him as much as I love the others, but he's up there. I respect him. And admire him i am very frustrated by him he makes me mad he makes me sad he wins (laughs) he wins my readerly heart and that is the mark of a well-rounded complex character that can elicit such emotion in the reader folks that's what we have with mr torrance the hero and the villain the father and the monster the husband and the alcoholic all wrapped up in one. And what a literary journey. (laughs) All right, my loves, let's recap our characters from The Shining. We've got our holy son, Danny Torrance, and Tony. Next, we have our holy mother, Wendy Torrance, followed by Dick Halloran, hero forever and always. Next, we have yikes and ew, Mark Torrance. I would have liked a little bit more personal background on him, so I wouldn't hate him as much as I do, but I don't know if that was King's intention. I think he may have just been the irredeemable villain in the background that we're supposed to hate, and that's okay. But I don't know if there was mention of any military past or anything like that. I'll have to go through my notes once more, but all of those men returning from war, (sighs) I mean whatever psychological stress and trauma you encountered you just had to swallow and keep buried deep inside and heaven help whoever got close to you so i would have really liked a lot more of that but this is jack's memory of his dad i don't think he was privy to that kind of information anyway moving on lastly we have jack torrance tragic hero tragic villain all right darlings i'm feeling a bit peckish I believe I hear some music playing. I think there's a party somewhere. Perhaps they have an hors d'oeuvre plate. If anyone sees a tray of champagne, please grab a glass for me. I'll see you in the next section. Good evening friends. I must tell you I've just phoned the front desk cuz I found some very original art on one of the walls in my room. Strange word. I've not really encountered it before. I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly. Red rum? Could that be it? Is it red drum perhaps? Unknown. And also when I was on my way to the ballroom, there was this old fire hose outside my door. It was very long and unraveled quite vintage i think it might be a safety hazard all unwound like that and i definitely need to reach out to maintenance but in the meantime let's examine a few issues i have with this novel frenzies unfortunately it's not all wine and roses we do have a couple warts to discuss this is the criticism and question section And if we have some time at the end, we're going to talk about the 1980 Kubrick film. I'm sorry to say I'm not going to have time for the 1997 miniseries in this episode, but there's always tomorrow. (laughs) So keep your eyes peeled for that at a later date. Until then, I have a few categories to share. This first category is called How Haunted Are You? I want to explore the haunted nature of the Overlook Hotel because I got some questions. For me, it's a little bit like the chicken or the egg kind of deal. And as a reader, I'm slightly confused. Basically, did the actual building of the hotel, is the building evil with a big E? and make its owners, Horace, Derwent, and others go berserk over the years? Or is the hotel actually fine? There's nothing wrong with it. And it's just coincidence that over the years, scummy people did shady things and dirty deeds at the hotel and their spirits got kind of stuck there because question mark? And that's basically my question, guys. That's the mystery. What's going on with the Overlook? and its guests to create this sticky killing zone. So to expand on this a little bit, what I'm getting at is that I do have a wee problem with the fact that the novel does not go very deep into the actual haunted nature of the hotel. The movie does a much better job with this. It's probably the only thing in my opinion that it does a good job with, more on that in a minute. Because in the film, right away, as soon as the Torrances arrive, The guide is like, yep, this was built on a native burial ground, and while they were building the hotel, they were fighting off attacks, and that screams to me, ladies and gentlemen, cursed ground. It's cursed. Sorry, colonizers, that's what you get. Cursed ground. Therefore, with that information in mind, the very foundations... Every single microscopic piece of concrete laid down on that property was going to be cursed. Nothing good was ever going to happen there. And it makes perfect sense why every single person who stayed at the Overlook would have something bad happen to them, like their own murder, their murdering someone else, or something else extremely negative. And sadly, that same information doesn't carry over to the novel. And what I have a bit of an issue with is that King doesn't stick to the Gothic playbook as much as I would like. If we jump back to Act 2, and we have that expository area of Overlook history when Jack is rummaging through old articles, and he discovers that the hotel was built in the early 1900s, and its owner was a bit of a playboy who had some wild parties where anything goes and later on there were some deals and handshakes with unsavory individuals, total mafia den, and then dead bodies start to pile up, but it doesn't seem like there was really anything cursed going on. It seemed like Derwent, as well as the first owner, bought a perfectly good hotel, but we don't know if something drove them to do these things? Something inside the hotel? Or was it just the ugly human spirit Someone who was already evil walked in there, and then somehow, more people who were evil or had malicious intent started to taint the place with murder until it became this hungry Venus flytrap. I'm just confused on the nature of the Overlook, my friends. We know it wants Danny, we know it wants power, and that psychic energy that Danny has is very desired. But what else does it want? Does it want more ghosts? Or would Danny's power allow them to live in their physical bodies again in this physical realm? Or do they just want maximum destruction power? My money is on the ladder. I just wish King would have gone the route of true hauntings and curse the ground because that's that's how it goes. <laughs> it's gotta be cursed. And if the ground's not cursed, that's fine. I definitely believe people can haunt places for sure, yes, of course, horrible things happen, souls get trapped, but toward the end, it seems as though the hotel really becomes a self-serving character on its own. And I'm just thinking to myself, how did you get here, hotel? Like what kind of hell portal opened up? What is the origin of the overlook's evil nature? I want to know its source and we don't really get to know its source in the novel. The film told me the source. Cursed native ground, boom, period, there's my answer. But King really takes an ambiguous path there. At the time of this novel's supposed timeline, we're in the 1970s, so maybe the hotel has been open close to 70 years, approximately, 60 plus, and it's haunted. We know that, but my question is how? And I'm really nerding out on this, guys, because I love haunted house stuff. It's my thing. I'm into it. And I'm just really hungry for clear answers. Some of the brilliant people in my book club suggested that maybe this could be a dark tower thing where another world, an evil world, has opened up and this pocket of awful has come to roost in the overlook. But Contextually, we don't have that, and so as much as I would like to just radically accept my imagination's wanderings, with this one, I have to stick to what the book tells me, and I don't have much. I don't understand (laughs) what's going on in the Overlook, how it got so sinister. What was it? The chicken or the egg? Is the ground cursed? Therefore, the hotel made the guests do terrible things? and it's all the hotel cursed from day one? Or is it the guests who just went rogue and tossed morality to the wind and let all their vices out and that pattern of murder kind of hung around and became a supernatural force? Which is it? I need to know. And the fact that it's a little gray doesn't sit well with me. So there's that. How haunted are you, Overlook? (laughs) That's our first big Peccadillo. Secondly, Tony who? We've talked about Tony a little bit already in the character section so I won't spend too much time rehashing that. but basically, I think it's a lot. I think that what King puts down with this Danny scheme is a huge aspect of the novel that raises a lot of questions and I would have liked some more clarity. In chapter 55 or 56, we're really at the end here. We are in the thick of Jack terrorizing the place. It's revealed to the reader that Danny is in a mental place where Tony is, but Danny brought himself there. It's so cerebral, guys. It's actually really well written, of course, and says, this is a hotel whose doors will never open, whose beds have never been slept in. No one will ever be able to touch you here. And it's basically saying that Danny, via absolute terror and trauma, kind of cocooned his own brain in this safe zone. But he can't really stay there because Tony warns Danny that his mother is hurt and key word here, may be killed. She may be killed. And that's a very telling word there, because at first, I thought that Tony is future Danny. He knows the future, he's lived it before. I don't think that's the case, because he said, your mom is hurt, she may be killed. I know that semantics, we could just say, he just didn't wanna scare young Danny, I don't know. But it's like, that threw me for a loop, guys. Hasn't he lived it before? Why wouldn't he? Ugh, I don't, see, it's so tricky. So the Tony thing, Tony being future Danny, just put my brain in the microwave. I'm just like a popcorn bag that's starting to burn. (laughs) I'm overthinking it. I'm overthinking like, what? Future Danny is Tony speaking to him to warn, kind of? But if it's future Danny, he's already lived through this. So why wouldn't he advise him to, I don't know, do a lot more things different. One could argue that he does give Danny those answers by telling him about the boiler kind of subtly. It's just, it's wild, ladies and gentlemen. It's wild. And so I think I have a little bit of an issue with just, it's, it's so huge. And it comes at the end when all hell is breaking loose. Like Jack is this demon creature thing trying to kill his family. Dick Halloran's on the way. He's almost gonna die being shredded up by topiary animals. We just have so much going on, and then we have to remember, oh yeah, this little kid's invisible friend is actually his future self reaching back through time. What? Oh my god, my brain. So, I guess... uh, And that's the thing. I don't know if I would change anything. You know, of course I wouldn't, but I'm kind of just like, really? Did you have to, did I need to know it was future Danny? I I don't think I did. I think I would have been fine just thinking that it's an angel boy or (laughs) it's just Danny's self-preservation something. I, I don't know. I like, I'm fine with it. I'm fine. But The last thing my brain needed was to be contemplating space and time. And so it kind of took me out of the story for a little bit because I was so confused with what he was doing there. Definitely spiraled off and thought too much about it. I'm fine with it. It's cool. We're cool. But dang, Steve, that was a lot when a lot is going down. (laughs) That is... I'm already really full from dinner and you're bringing out our third dessert and i want to eat it i do can i eat it no i'm gonna upchuck all of my delicious meal because you keep shoving it in i can't eat anymore so <laughs> i feel a little stuffed when king sort of reveals this tony part so i don't know what are your guys's thoughts i can't wait to discuss this with all of you this is the most bonkers book in the best way last little category here before we talk about the movie. This is just a little edit I wanted to throw out there, because again, this leads back to my first question about the true haunted nature of the hotel. In the middle of the novel, we have Jack sort of in a kind of fever dream, call up Stuart Ullman, who gave him the job, and Stuart's kind of a very there's no other way to put this but he's like a very seemingly in the text like a bratty bitchy individual and he basically told jack torrance don't call unless someone's dead and so jack does saying that he's going to write a book about the hotel and absolutely drag it through the mud and really cause such a scandal because why didn't you tell me this hotel was run by mobsters and cutthroats and There have been so many murders and deaths here and I wish you would have been more candid with me about that and I'm gonna really rake the hotel's name through the mud." Then, Stuart Ullman calls up his old drinking buddy Al Shockley and says, "'You better call off your bro here. He's really, really causing some problems and he's going to scandalize the hotel." And Al gets on the phone and says, "'What's up, Jack?' you will do no such thing. You're not going to trash talk my hotel. There will be no book. You're not going to drag it through the mud. This whole conversation is a very long chapter, and it's like, what in the actual hell is going on? Because these two gentlemen, Stuart and Al, which kind of have a strange connection in general, are like feverishly protective of the Overlook, which leads me to believe there's some sort of really sinister arm that can reach across country to preserve the hotel's reputation, to ensure its survival. And it's like, why do we need this? What's going on here? What the chapter does serve is to kind of show that Jack is becoming very brazen. Because before, In the earlier part of the novel, when he's speaking to Mr. Ullman, he seems sort of very meek and mild for the most part. He's somebody who's been disgraced. He assaulted a student, lost his job. They have no money. This is a real last chance opportunity for him. And then all of a sudden, a few weeks later, he's really quite brash and very arrogant about his desire to exploit the hotel, with a tell-all book and make a ton of money on that behalf, basically biting the hand that's feeding him and acting very much like an angry wasp that we have some strong symbolism of inside the novel. And it's like, what are you doing, bro? And so that leads me to believe that the hotel is definitely having an effect on Jack because this behavior is rather forward and borderline rude and this brazenness where is it coming from so it does serve a purpose sort of but it's very subtle you really have to be looking closely at Jack's character and his mannerisms thus far and so this is such a long call it's strange and I don't get it and I really want to chop that whole chapter why is he doing that I could maybe see with talking to just Stuart Ullman or just al shockley but both of them together it's just mm, not working well that would be the one scene i would chop if i was able to be in the editing room with mr king and publishers i would definitely circle that scene in a red pencil and say that no mm -mm, nope i get it i'm okay with what it kind of shows but it's too subtle too long And I think there are other ways to show that the hotel is having an effect on Jack. And leading back to my first point, if he wants to keep that chapter, we need greater clarity on the source of the hotel's power. What's driving it? Where is it receiving this power from? It's not Cursed Ground, because we would have found out about that in the newspaper clippings, so it's not there. And I feel just because a lot of mobsters got murdered there, I don't know if it's enough anyway i'm kind of ad nauseum on that point to recap how haunted are you overlook that's the main question tony who and chop the phone call all right dear ones i think it is now time to discuss the 1980 film i watched the entire thing this week it's been a really long time since i had seen the whole thing i don't even remember the last time i saw it so this was a real treat Let's start with what I liked. I already told you I really enjoy how the film introduces the native burial ground that the hotel was built upon. I think that is so perfect. It works so well. The other things I love about the film... The music. The music is incredible! I think it's so perfect for those jam-packed theaters, that big movie sound. The music is what's terrifying. It is so atmospheric, very frightening. The music is amazing. Next, the filming. I do like Kubrick style. I love sort of that Scandinavian tight, clean, open, sparse. Love the filming. I love the set. Oh, the set is amazing. The Timberline Lodge, the interior. It's so beautiful. I love that Danny, Jack, and Wendy seem so small in these giant rooms, these giant open spaces. It's rich. It's ornate. The colors, the textures, the patterns, the design. It's stunning. It's perfect. I love it. So much to love. The last thing I love, and this is tricky, I love Jack Nicholson's performance. I love it! It's nuts. It's great. Jack Nicholson is as cool as cool can be, right? He is just vulpine and a rock star. Jack Nicholson is just so cool. So I do love his wild, crazy, over-the-top performance. When he yells at Wendy, it's just like chilling. And now, let's go to what I don't like about the film. Yes, I enjoy Jack Nicholson's performance as Jack Torrance. However, what I will say I don't like about the film is the casting. Is his performance great? Yes. Is this the role he should have had? Absolutely not. No. This guy, Jack Nicholson, is Mr. Cool from the first shot of the film this guy is just smiling and kicking ass and taking names. This is not a man who has been humbled by the loss of a job, who's really worried about the future. He is not a desperate man. And I think I would have really liked to have seen Jack Torrance's character portrayed in that way. Jack Nicholson is too cool. He's too cool to be Jack Torrance. He just is. And From the beginning of the film, it seems like he's already a little unhinged. And I understand why that works because I think the film's narrative, especially with the very end, the very last shot, with Jack Nicholson in the middle of the 1921 July 4th ball, he was always the caretaker, as Delbert Grady says in The Red Bathroom. You've always been the caretaker, as if to say, you're connected to this place, doomed, the doom loop. You were always supposed to be here, so if anything, you just are returning home. We got you back. I get it. The other thing, oh, poor Shelley Duvall. I don't think that working with Mr. Kubrick was a fun time. We have a lot of evidence that supports that. I don't feel this was the right role for her. I think she tried her best. I just don't know if it was the right role. I think both of them, had the chemistry of wet newspaper they're supposed to be a married couple and there is no marital warmth between them nothing not a hug not a touch not a kiss jack nicholson acts as if he doesn't want to touch her with a 10-foot pole Shelley duvall's interactions with him is very awkward and contrived it's just not believable that they're a couple in any way in any way they're not a couple that is so jarring I know that a lot of people rag on Shelley for her emotional reactions in the films, and I get it, I can accept that, I understand. If I had a director breathing down my neck and treating me like garbage, I don't think my performance would be super great either, so I can take that with a grain of salt, but I just don't feel she was the best choice, nor was Jack Nicholson. They have zero believability as a married couple and that really sort of bugs me another area i disapprove of is the death of dick halleran why'd you do that stanley why that wasn't needed not needed at all why'd you have to kill off the hero like that very dark i understand that kubrick was making a very dark film a stylistically open vacant film to really chill the audience but that was cold and that was dark and that was sinister so it accomplishes what i think his goal was but one of my favorite quotes from steve talks about how stanley's version of the shining is like a beautiful car with no engine there wasn't any warmth there wasn't any heart i agree wholeheartedly king gives Jack, that last fatherly moment, and there's a beautiful quote where Jack comes back. He's back in his body and he looks at Danny and he says, Danny, run, get out of here, never forget how much I love you. And it says that Danny's heart went aflame. He knew it was his dad. Beauty like that, and heart. And yeah, we got none of that. We got none of that in Kubrick's version. I'm okay with it. He made his creative changes. Do I love the book more? A thousand percent, y'all. Yes. Oh my god. (laughs) The movie is its own artistic endeavor. It's successful for what it shows on film is iconic. The performances, the set, the music, it's all its own thing. I don't like the changes. Much like many a devoted King fan, why you gotta change it to 237? I know there's a concrete, specific reason for that, but little things like that. Little things. But to wrap it all up, I like Kubrick's film. I like it. But I love King's novel. So there you go. (sighs) Oh, ladies and gentlemen, I am so nervous about this one. I have re-recorded these parts several times because I just was getting so nervous on screwing things up, wanting to bring as much data out as I could. This was a beast this was a bear, but I realized if there are any areas that one would like to see me explore further, there can always be additional parts. We can do a part two, we can do a part three, it doesn't have to end. Therefore, I just need to relax. <laughs> I hope you all have enjoyed this distillation of my read-through of The Shining. Like all the episodes on the show, these novels are alive and open forever, and I look forward to opening them up again and re-discussing these characters, these moments, these stories. That's the joy of King, and I love this ride. But I do believe that's my time to exit, everyone. I really did have a grand time. Coming off on the show, we are headed back to Fantasy King with Fairy Tale, Finishing up that novel quickly here fairy tale will be our next installment hopefully before the end of summer we'll definitely have that for you in august i also have a super beautiful episode with my friend matt robinson from King's size get ready it's so good everybody you're gonna love it to pieces i'm thrilled i'm so excited that is coming up soon if you are a fan of the show and haven't said hello yet please head over to underrated at gmail and say hi Let me know what you think about the show. Tell me about your favorite King novels, what you recommend I read later on this year. I would love to hear from you. Thank you all so very much for listening to the show. If you would be so kind as to give us a five star or a review, that would mean so much. Definitely melt the ice around this frozen hotel. (laughs) I'm so grateful to every single one of you who spent some time with these episodes thank you so very much. Be safe out there. Don't trust those bushes. I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.